you'll make your way to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, that's where we're going to be tonight. It's a high water point in the Old Testament and Scripture altogether, and we're going to look at this. But let me say uh, tonight, uh, just in case you forgot... Uh, as I said this morning, Alfreda Davis is 80 years old. You don't turn 80 every day. You only do that once, in fact. And so we are going to have a birthday gathering in the fellowship room back there. I'm not even sure she knows this yet, uh, but she's going to be there too. And um, some of her family will be there with her. And, and we're going to meet in the, immediately after this. Nothing long, nothing ornate, but just stay and and uh, have some just a, a, some, some cake or something and, and just kind of say a few things to her. She is one of the most delightful people you, you'll just ever run across. She's a lot of fun to be around, and she's worthy of making a little bit of a fuss when she turns 80. Uh, she, she, she's going to really have a party when she turns 90, but she's going to have to stick around a little longer for that one. We are in Exodus chapter 33. And uh, <clears throat> I think um, nearly all our uh, struggle when it comes to God and to religion revolves around uh, the imbalance that is naturally human. You think of a pendulum, for, one, for, for instance, we swing from one side to the other um, because of one extreme that we've abused all these years. We go to the other extreme and, and it just we're constantly swinging from one side to the other and somehow keeping, just keeping in the center, in the middle is the hardest challenge of all. We lean one way or another, which causes us to be in distortion of the truth because the truth is kind of balance. So we're kind of warped. You know, sometimes in the way that we try to achieve balance. Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 18. Um, Moses said, or God said, when Moses said, um, I want to, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Uh, this is one of those things that if I were in Moses' shoes, I would have done exactly the same thing. He's had a relationship with God. God himself says we're like friends speaking face to face. Uh, and, and now he says, since I've got that position, I, I want you to show me your glory. I want to see you. Uh, we, we're very visual. We like pictures. We like images. And he says, I want to see you. I don't want to just hear you. I, I want to see you. And, and he said, God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, will, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. He says, well, I'll, I'll have all my goodness. That's, if there's one word that God puts in to describe himself, it's the word goodness. I will have all my goodness. This is me. I'm going to have all my goodness pass in front of you. And then while I'm passing you, I'm going to proclaim my name. Now, this is a little bit of a cop-out to me, you know. Proclaim your name. Moses is like, you've told me your name at the burning bush years ago. You told me your name. But not in the full revelation. Each time God uh, reveals something of his nature to people, it's kind of like a little bit more and a little bit more. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dump on you my nature. I'm going to give it all to you. 
That sounds a little bit like I, I want to see him, and yet you're going to just come by and pass. You're just going to say my name. Um, and God is serious about his name, isn't he? You can see it in a lot of ways because he won't reveal it all the time. And in fact, there's a commandment that protects his name. You will not take the Lord your God's name in vain. So he's saying, my name is serious. It's serious business. It, it matches me. It kind of reveals me, and I'm going to reveal myself to you. And so we're waiting for this to happen. When's God's goodness going to pass? What's it look like? And then what's he going to say when he does? And so it turns over to chapter 34, so capably read a moment ago. And there he goes at the top of the mountain, and God says, you know, you broke that first set of commandments, so I want you to chisel out a couple of stones, just like the first ones, all right on them, but you chiseled them out. And you bring them up on the mountain alone, just you and me. And this event happens. There is Moses, chapter 34, on the mountain of God. Present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen. Throughout the whole mountain, let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets, as, as God said, just like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Here's Moses. And God comes and stands next to him. That had to have been really cool to have God standing next to him. God said, now let me tell you my name. This becomes the focal point of understanding God in all the Old Testament and all of Scripture. All the prophets look back to this. Uh, the psalmist, when he's praising God for his nature, he looks back to this. The best psalm in the psalm book, Psalm 103, is a celebration of this. And God reveals himself. And so we're going to read it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I think I've got the, the ESV, so I'm going to read it in the ESV, which I think is what's behind me. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There, that's it. That's God. That's his nature. That's his character. And this is big stuff. It's classic. It's like high point, water point of the Old Testament. Uh, but this evening I want to show you that I think this is the most difficult thing to understand of God, is putting these two parts together. It explains why in Deuteronomy, God says, you know, God never, Moses says, God never appeared to you in an image. He never intended to. Because there's not an image that can convey the complex nature of God, right? The two sides of God, what I'm going to call. And so he's got to, he just paints you a portrait with words. God insists on you to trust his words about himself. And that's why there's also another commandment that you don't make God into some kind of image. Because there is no image that's capable of conveying all that God is. We will err on one side or another. We will err on power. We will err on grace. We will err on something. God is all of it in one. And there's no creature on earth that can adequately communicate the nature of God. 
And that's the only image anybody ever makes, something that's familiar. Not even we who are made in the image of God can make an image of ourselves and think that's God. That would be ludicrous. But the two sides. God paints a portrait with words. It's a self-portrait. An auto, not biography, an auto-artistry, right? It's just an auto-portrait. He's painting of himself. I want to define myself, and I'm going to do it. Notice the two parts. The first part, the most wordy part, is the positive part. It's the one we love to read about. It's the one that we love to run to and count on. It's the grace people. All churches of Christ are in two camps, right? You're either a grace or a legal church, right? And it's because of this definition, and it makes all the sense in the world. Look at it again. It's on the screen, and you see it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Gracious. Did you get that? Gracious. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, slow to anger. What a wonderful attribute that is for a God who has all power. Abounding in steadfast love. Endless love and compassion. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We love that. And you have the churches that major in this. God's all love. Love and grace and mercy and compassion. And it doesn't matter what a wreck you've made of your life or it doesn't matter what you ever do, God's always going to accept you. And there's a truth to that, isn't there? But there's another side. He will by no means clear the guilty. He cannot overlook a single transgression. He doesn't shrug it off. Just because all have sinned doesn't mean sin ain't no big deal. Because our God says, I will by no means overlook or just casually disregard your life of rebellion against me. I will visit that sin on every member of your family until it's atoned for. There's the legalistic side. There's the people who said, but God's serious about what he says. You've got to do it, folks. This is, we want to cross the, dot the I, cross the T. And there's a reason why churches are like this. Because God's like this. How in the world do you put these two together? It's a terrible balance to try to strike. Churches need to strike it, though. We need to be churches that hold up high standards. God has great expectations. He created us in His image, and He knows we're capable of more than what we often deliver. And He wants to keep the standard high. But He's also very gracious and patient and kind as we strive to do this. How do we avoid this? While we come up with labor, that's a progressive church. That's a liberal church. That's a conservative church. That's a legalistic church. It's the church struggling to find a balance between these things. I'm going to use a couple Old Testament prophets as an example of this. God shows up and tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to that great city, all those thousands of people who are, who are in the crosshairs of my judgment. And what does he do? I want you to go to Nineveh. And he gets up, he gets on a ship, and he goes exact opposite. He's running away from God. I don't want to do it. You want to guess why Jonah didn't want to do it? Back up to that other screen, if you would, just a second. This is why he didn't want to do it. 
this right here. Because he knows God. As a Jewish person, he knows the definition of God. He knows that first half, that wordy half. The most words are that positive, gracious. He knew that God would be patient. And I can't stand God being patient with anybody but me. Now you're going to say, you're making this up. No, I'm not making it up. He runs away from God. God gives him some, by nature, attitude adjustments, and he suddenly finds himself vomited up on shore. Just by, just so happens, by Nineveh. It's a free ride. Didn't even have to pay for it. And he goes and he preaches, and he has the most successful uh, revival in the history of the entire world. And he hates every second of it. I can't imagine you're a preacher and you preach this and just, everybody comes forward and you say, I didn't want that to happen. I want you all to fry in hell. Right? And that's what you're doing. Right? Why did he do this? And here's how he explains it. This is side one. It's Jonah. And this is from Jonah chapter four. And he's finally talking to God for the first time in the book. He's really talking in a conversation with God. And it says, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was still in my country and you called me? This is why I didn't want to go. I knew you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Where did he get that from? Where did this Jew get this idea that we serve a God who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and forgiving people their transgressions and iniquities? He got it from Exodus 34. And he's angry about it. Because an awful lot of times, I'm all for grace for me, but I'm not grace for other people. Why? Because I know the efforts I'm making. I'm really trying to be a spiritual person. I'm really trying to, to, to follow the scriptures. I'm really trying. I know I am, but I'll look at them and I know they're not. Now, how you know that, I'm not sure. How you know everybody who might be mistaken is doing this with a total intent to go against the Word of God. I don't know how you know that, but we all seem to know that. We are trying. We in Churches of Christ are trying. The others aren't. They are flippant. And I want grace for where I fall short, but I've tried. On. I don't want grace for them because I'm not sure they tried all that hard. That's one side, but don't forget the other side. And by the way, it's the same nation of people. This is, Jonah was called to go to the people of Assyria who lived in the city of Nineveh in about the year 750. And God, you know, he went through the city and he preached this and, and they all repented. Even the animals repented, which I do not understand what that means. Have you seen a cow that's moved to repent? Have you seen that before? I call it, they're on their knees, and I call it ground beef, right? That's what I get. I don't know. Anyway, that's all Jonah, okay? Uh, but these people, and God extended grace to them and forgave them and all that, and that's wonderful, except Jonah didn't like it, and he, at the end of the book, he's still raising a fist at God. We have no idea if he ever came around or not. But that's not the last word, though. You see, those people repented for a short time. 100 years later, God sends another prophet. His name is Nahum. He sends another prophet to them. And this prophet doesn't repeat so much the first part of the definition of God. He repeats the second half. 
Because sometimes we're so excited about God's grace and His compassion and repentance that we forget He also has standards, that it's supposed to motivate you. You see, I'm not striving in my life to get God's grace. I'm striving in my life because I've already got it. And it's supposed to drive you to look at me to be more holy. I'm not trying to be holy and do things right to get His favor. I'm trying to because I've already got His favor. That's the thing He wants us to see. But a lot of people, because they get the favor so easily, they casually disregard the high expectation. So here's Nahum, chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous God, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And He's saying, be ready, Nineveh, I'm about to destroy you. Through the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2, he's telling Nineveh, I gave you a shot. I gave you a chance. You took advantage of it, but you did not change your life. And I'm bringing in another nation in here, and no one will ever live in you again. I'm wiping you off the face of the earth. Why? Because God, while he's patient, will not wait forever for these people to abide by his expectations. We all, look at, uh, we all look at Jonah and say, look at the grace of God, and it's true. But look at Nineveh too, and the empty vastness of that area now, and remember that God does have an expectation. And He won't wait forever. And He's compassionate, and He's kind, and He's generous, and He's patient, but He's still expectant. I want to see fruit. I want to see a difference. That repentance of Nineveh was temporary. It didn't change anybody's life for long. And because of that, the second half of that definition of God comes down in judgment upon them. What does this mean for us? God is patient and gracious. God's people need to be patient and gracious. God's church needs to be the epitome of grace and patience. When we stumble, God is slow to punish. He's willing to endure our miscues and our human frailty, and we're thankful, aren't we? Every single one of us, every single day. But don't take this as God saying, well, this is where the grace side goes a little wrong. He is so gracious that He really doesn't care whether you become holy or not. I do believe God accepts you just as you are, but He will not accept you to continue being just as you were. He puts His Holy Spirit in you. He puts His Word and His church in your life so that you'll never again be who you once were. And every day you get further along the road of His expectations. God has high expectations. When I go to God, I want to picture Him this way. You've just had a bad day of poor performance, right? You haven't done great. You've lost your temper. You've said some things you shouldn't. And that's what you've striven to change in your life. You've, uh, so how do you go to God? Do you, do, you, do you run away from God like Adam and Eve and like Jonah did? No, you should look at God as a patient God who wants you to come. To, he wants you to run from his wrath by running to his grace. He wants you to do that. But when you come, don't just say, forgive me of this, but empower me to make a different choice next time. 
I do want to make him pleased with my behavior. And while God will never love you more than he loved you that first day, he does have pleasure in seeing you grow. He doesn't delight in seeing his children still struggling in the throes of sin over and over again, always coming back to repent, never really changing and never really growing and never really trying. He does have an expectation for you. Don't have a God who does not have high expectations for you. He does. He knows what image he made you in. He knows what, he knows what you're capable of. He knows his Holy Spirit is in you and you have little excuse. So look at God as a God who is very quick to forgive and slow to anger, but also a God who has high expectations for you. You ever think sometimes we in the church live below where we could because the expectation here is so low? You ever wonder that? Can a church have a low expectation? Oh, we don't expect you to live above your animal desire. Do the best you can and come back for forgiveness the next day. That's why we have a fear of God. I know what he made me capable of. I want to please him. And a lot of times when I go to him for forgiveness, I'm not afraid of him throwing me out of the family. I'm just aware that he's disappointed I could be better than I am at that spot. He's also the one ready to extend that forgiveness that propels me toward it. That grace that's supposed to propel you toward holiness and not give you an excuse to accept less than that. The cross is both, isn't it? We look at the cross and say, it's a love of God. It is, but it's also the wrath of God. God is saying in the cross, sin cannot be shrugged off. Sin cannot be casually overlooked. Sin will be paid for by Jesus or by you. So while it shows his extreme love for us, it also shows his extreme frustration with sin and its opposition to him. God is both. The cross is both. We must be both. The church must be both. Now the best word that rides the middle of this. One concept, I think, rides right in the middle. And it's repentance. Repentance means falling short's a big deal. If it's not, why would you repent? There's lots of people who've just accepted sin in their life. They've made this, sin, this peace treaty with their sin. And they say, oh, it's no big deal. And because of that, repentance is not really a big feature of their prayers. Repentance is not a major feature of their lives. And they just kind of, well, yeah, every once in a while I'll say that, throw out that Hail Mary kind of forgiveness thing in a public prayer or whatever. I, I'm going to do that. But repentance is a big deal because I'm coming to God and saying, I'm not where I should be. I recognize I've fallen short of where I should be. If you don't recognize that, you will not repent. So the best sign to show of a Christian is, do they repent a lot? I don't mean just by throwing out the words, but do you come to God specifically and say, these are the areas today where I recognized that I made in your image and I acted much out of character and so much less than I could be. It makes you want to have to repent. It makes you want to. It makes you want to look around and say, is anybody around? I need to go into a closet somewhere and repent right now. I cannot go any further. And not because you're going to go to hell if something happened. It's because you want to acknowledge to God, God, I recognize in myself that what I have done today is so much less than you deserve. Repentance is a gift. 
It's an admission that my sin is a bigger deal than I ever imagined. But it also is a possibility because God is gracious and He makes it possible. You come to a God in whose image you were made and He knows what you're capable of and He knows what He's asked of you. And you say to Him, in some ways I was today, in some ways I wasn't. And I repent to you because I know that you will forgive because that's what you revealed of yourself. I'm glad we have Jonah. I'm glad we have Nahum. I'm glad we have the cross. I'm thankful every day for the gift of repentance. And it all goes back to that image God painted of himself. This amazing portrait of words that conveys everything he wants to say. I want you to know, I want to motivate you to come to me and I want to motivate you to be better than you ever have been in your life. I want to, I want to give you the motivation to strive for more than who you are right now, but also the cushion to come that when you tried and you failed, you know you can safely come to me. It's a portrait God painted on the top of Mount Sinai with Moses standing next to him. Look carefully at the portrait. Study it carefully in your own life. And then, with all of your might, with all of your energy, try to reproduce that image in your own life. Because to be like God is the highest honor. But after all, it is the pattern we were created in. And there's no reason not to strive for it. May we be a group of people who are about grace and compassion and kindness. But may we also be a group of high expectations and high demands of each other with a cushion of grace thrown in all the time. Can we at Valley View somehow, instead of pendulum swinging, can we somehow reach this balance of honoring the two sides of God? I pray that we can and I hope that you can in your own life because it's the greatest satisfaction in the world to strive to get that balance, to know that I've got high expectations, but also a cushion. If there's anyone here tonight that for whatever reason you need to make a response, a public statement of any kind in front of your own family, we stand ready to hear it and to do what we can to assist you as we stand and as we sing.